You're listening to TIP. Hey guys, I am really excited to share an upcoming event hosted by the Investors Podcast Network. Beginning on Monday, October 17th, we're launching a stock pitch competition for you all to compete in, where the first place prize is $1,000 plus a year-long subscription to our TIP finance tool. If you are interested in this, please visit theinvestorspodcast.com slash stock dash competition for more information. The last day to submit your stock analysis will be Sunday, November 27th. And to compete, please make sure you're signed up for our daily newsletter, We Study Markets, as that's where we'll announce the winners. And all entries can be submitted to the email newsletters at theinvestorspodcast.com. Good luck. On today's episode, I bring back Brian Martucci, who's the finance editor at Money Crashers, and we talk all about investing in bonds for beginners. He covers the benefits of including bonds into a portfolio, the risks associated with these investments. He also goes over the term structure, why a normal yield curve is upward sloping, and why the yield curve is inverted today and what that means. He also goes over the different types of bonds that investors can buy, where investors can buy them, and he covers some specific bonds that are very attractive in this environment, such as iSavings bonds and a hybrid investment, also known as preferred shares. So with that said, I really hope you enjoy today's conversation with Brian Martucci. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Rebecca Hotsko, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Hotsko. And on today's episode, I am joined by Brian Martucci. Brian, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks so much for coming back on the show, Brian. So for today's discussion, I wanted to go over some of the basics of bonds with you, how to invest in them and just some different bond investing strategies and maybe some products that are most suitable for millennials. Recently, we've had on some guests talking about bonds and suggesting they might be a good investment for millennials right now. But I also had some listeners message me saying they're not sure how to apply this as the bond universe is so large. So I thought it'd be good to have you on and go over some of these bond basics. So I guess just to start off, I think it'd be helpful to talk about what are the benefits of investing in bonds to just help our listeners determine if adding some fixed income exposure to their portfolio makes sense, because it won't make sense for everyone. But I think this could help frame the conversation of who it might be good for. Yeah, bonds do make sense for a lot of millennial investors, a lot of younger investors. I think the biggest reason you'll hear people recommend that you invest in bonds is for um, diversification. They're sort of, you know, stocks and bonds aren't like opposite or, you know, it's not like a yin and yang situation, but they do tend to have an inverse relationship historically, meaning in a good year for stocks, bonds won't do as well, but in a bad year for stocks, bonds tend to do better. This past year, the sort of post pandemic period has been a counter to that. Historically, it's been an aberration in that stocks and bonds have not done very well, but bonds have still performed better than stocks. It's been a really awful year for both. And actually, it's been a historically terrible year for bonds. So this is about 
the worst uh, bonds have ever done, which is a kind of a good thing if, again, you're you're comparing to how the stock market has done, which is even worse. So, you know, going back to diversification, in most younger investors, the recommendation is not that you are all in bonds or even a majority in bonds, um, depending on your risk tolerance. Maybe it's 90% stocks, 10% bonds, or 80% stocks, 20% bonds. If you're a little bit more conservative, you can you can have higher allocation. Over time, as you get older, because bonds are, are generally less risky, the recommendation usually is to increase your bond holdings and decrease your stock holdings proportionally. But you know, we're talking as you get into your 50s and 60s. The benefits of bonds, there are several beyond the inverse relationship with stocks. One is capital preservation. So bonds, they're less risky than stocks overall. They're less volatile. And that means that they, you know, even bad years for bonds, the price swings tend to be less dynamic than with stocks, which is good if you're risk averse and you want to, you don't want to keep your money in cash, which is even less volatile and has less upside, but you still want to have the benefit of, you know, not owning stocks that are going to lose half their value over 18 months. Another thing, you know, some stocks do, but not all is income generation. All bonds, virtually all bonds pay interest. And sometimes those interest rates can be pretty attractive, you know, much better than even now than your money is going to do in the bank and um, generally higher than stock dividends. Those interest payments are known as coupon payments and they usually come semi-annually. So twice a year and it's always predictable. It's fixed, usually fixed. There are some exceptions that we'll probably talk about. But yeah, so that's really nice. It's predictable. And you can either reinvest those payments if you own a bond fund or you can just... If you want income, you can just take those payments. And so that's another really helpful attribute. And yeah, I mean, those, are, those are actually the two, the two big ones for millennials tends to be cited. Yeah, I think that's really helpful for the way you explain that because when some of our guests come on and they recommend bonds or they say it's a good investment right now, it doesn't necessarily mean it's good for everyone because their strategy behind that might be shorter term or Mm -hmm. just might be more tactical. And so I kind of just wanted to go over the basics and go over some of the risks and benefits and then investors can figure out if it does make sense for them. And so I guess I do want to go over the risks of investing in bonds with you because it's different than equities. So can you talk about some of the main risks with bond investing? Sure. And there are several. So the biggest one is, and it kind of gets at like a fundamental aspect of bonds is that interest rates and prices tend to move, bond prices tend to have an inverse relationship. So when prevailing interest rates rise, bond prices tend to fall. That's why bonds have done so poorly this year because interest rates have gone up really fast. That essentially means that the value of the bonds that you hold is lower. So if you were to sell them, you know, just like if the stock declines in value and you sell it, you're going to lose money. Same deal with bonds. And a lot of, not all, but a lot of the volatility in bond markets can be explained by interest rate movements, you know, what the Federal Reserve is doing, what other important benchmark rates are doing. The other risk is a little bit more theoretical or not theoretical, but less kind of tangible is inflation risk. So, you know, bonds, but right now we're in a high inflation environment. Inflation's at 40 years, year highs in the US and similarly in a lot of other parts of the world. And if bond rates don't rise to meet inflation, they actually, you know, since they're fixed, the real return on your bonds is lower in an inflationary environment. So, if you have a bond that yields 4% annually, which is about where 
one year U.S. Treasuries are right now, but the inflation rate is eight or nine percent where it is right now. Your bond is actually losing four to five percent per year in real value. So it's better than putting your money in, you know, a savings account that only yields one or two percent interest, but you're not keeping pace. And right now, most uh, bonds that we call investment grade, which we'll we'll talk about later, they don't yield you know eight or nine percent. They're more in the mid single digits range. So you know in this kind of environment, you're losing value, and that's part of the reason why bonds haven't haven't done that well this year. There's also credit risk in the bond market. So every bond, you know, a bond is basically you're giving a company or a government agency or entity or government itself alone you know just like any borrowing situation the borrower has good or bad or in between credit and your likelihood of repayment of getting you know that bond repaid depends on the credit the financial stability of that entity or that organization so companies that aren't in a great financial position they are more likely to default on their bonds, so not be able to repay them. Interest rates tend to be higher to account for that. You're still dealing with a very real likelihood that, um, or real possibility, I should say, that you're not going to get all the money back that you put in. With like governments, you know, the U.S. government, the credit risk is really just theoretical, and you know, it's very. I mean, you will get different opinions depending on who you talk to, but you know, personally, I think the credit risk of the U.S. government and is quite low. So you, you can be very confident that you're going to get repaid on that bond. And same for other, you know, developed economies like um, German bonds. They famously have low interest rates because, you know, the German government is seen as very stable and um, Swiss bonds and so forth. But credit risk is still something to keep in mind if you're investing in bonds from, you know, emerging economies or from companies that aren't maybe in the best financial health. And then there's also liquidity risk where, you know, some bonds, the market, the secondary market is very liquid for like US treasuries, for example, you're always going to be able to find a buyer, maybe not at the exact price you want, but those markets don't really break down. But there are a lot of bonds that they're thinly issued. There are only a few, you know, coupons or, or bonds that are circulating. And if no one wants to sell or no one wants to buy, there's really no no market for them. So if you want to get rid of a bond, it's not as simple as just like withdrawing money from it. You you might be stuck. Um, so that's a that's a big deal. If you and an important reason why you should look at bonds generally, or I should say, re- retail investors should look at bonds generally as more of a long term investment. And uh, yeah, those are kind of the main the main drawbacks. All that said, bonds in general carry less risk than stocks. So as you mentioned, one of the biggest factors that influence bonds and one of the major risks is interest rate risk. So I want to dive into this one a bit deeper because this one is probably the most important to understand. So can you just walk us through how interest rates impact bond prices and yields? Yeah. You know, as, as I mentioned, the relationship is basically inverse. When interest rates go up, bond prices tend to go down. But it's also true that uh, longer term bonds are more sensitive to interest rate risk. Uh, longer term bonds tend to be more influenced by like inflation or like general kind of prognostications about where the economy is going. And so another piece that I want to cover with you on this is having you talk about the difference between bonds with different maturities. So Mm -hmm. we know that the normal curve, the term structure of bonds is upward sloping. Can you just Mm -hmm. kind of walk us through why and the risks behind investing in shorter term bonds versus longer term bonds? 
Yeah. So the when we talk about a, an upward sloping curve, we're we're talking about kind of if you if you plot like the interest rate, like a smooth curve, um, you think of a graph with an X and Y axis, and you're looking at the yield as it relates to maturities, the yield is going to be lower in a normal environment. The yield is going to be lower for shorter maturities, like, you know, six months, one year, two years, than it is for longer maturities, like 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. And that's because there's more inherent risk in holding bonds for longer periods of time because, you know, the future gets harder to predict the farther you go out. And so there's more risk that the bond issuer will run into financial trouble. There's more risk of periods of higher inflation that will affect the bond's returns. There are other risks that can arise when you're starting to look beyond one year or two years. It just gets a lot. It just gets a lot less certain. Now, the... The yield curve currently is actually isn't behaving as normal for some weird reason. So the yield curve is flat to inverted, depending, depending on when you look at it. And that can be a sign of shorter term economic problems or expectations that there are going to be economic problems in, in the future. We've heard a lot of talk about uh, or in the near future. We've heard a lot of talk about recession coming you know, next year. And the, the yield curve is telling us that we should take those concerns seriously. I mean, we can talk more about that if you'd like. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top-rated personal finance app, has built-in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget, and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. And most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, my wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com mi. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash mi for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash mi for an extended 30-day free trial. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, 
a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. All right, back to the show. Yeah, it is interesting because I saw this morning that the 10-year yield has now hit its highest level since the global financial crisis and the two-year yield is also at its highest level since 2007. So it's just interesting. The bond prices in the bond market, it just has lots of information about other markets and markets expectations. And so I think that's a really interesting thing about looking at bonds, it just that information in the prices. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, it's kind of like, I don't, I don't know how much stock you want to, you want to put in this, but sort of a lot of, if you ask a lot of people, they'll say that the bond market is sort of the smartest money around. So like what the bond market does should be taken really seriously, uh, more so than what, you know, individual stocks are doing or even the broader stock market. Like people who trade bonds for a living are really attuned to, to risk and probabilities and just general, you know, economic conditions. So when the yield curve inverts or, or when, when yields spike, your shorter term yield spike, especially, then it's something to take seriously. And one specific, when we're talking about yield curve inversions, we look at pairs of, of bonds often. So one common pair that, that people look at for clues about what's happening in the economy is the, um, the 10 year and the two year US treasuries. You know, as we talked about, the two year in a normal environment should have a lower yield than the 10 year because the 10 year is a much longer maturity. But um, recently and currently, the two year yields higher than the 10-year, the although the 10-year is really spiking as well. So that's a potential recession indicator. It's not the only one. There's also the 10-year the and the three-month that people look at. And that's a more, you know, that curve should basically never be inverted. So when it is, it's usually a sign. It's almost always a sign of a recession historically. And then there are other ones that they're kind of more esoteric ones like Jerome Powell, the chair of the Federal Reserve said that he prefers looking at the relationship between the three month and like a derivative of the expectations for the three months, 18 months from now, which is kind of confusing, but that's a more like, you know, that's kind of like high finance. Like you're, you're just looking at like synthetic products that most people don't, most retail investors don't deal with, but they still tell us important things about where the economy could be going. So when the yield curve is inverted, can you talk about what's going on to create that? Is it a scenario where there's more demand for those long-term treasuries and so more investors are buying them and um, bidding down so the price is going up and then the yields are going down compared to the two-year? Uh, yeah, that's a good way to describe it. It's relative. So the demand for both might be lower than, you know, in, in different periods. But yeah, the relative demand for the longer term security is the longer term bond is higher. And so they're bidding the price down relative to the, the shorter term, which, um, you know, people don't don't want to own as much because of the uncertainty. 
And then I guess the next thing I want to talk with you about is the two broad different types of bonds we can invest in. So starting on the highest level, government versus corporate bonds. Can you talk a bit about those and maybe the key differences investors should know about? Sure. Yeah. So government bonds, um, we've been talking about U.S. treasuries a lot and sovereign governments all issue bonds or, or generally, I, I don't know for sure that every country in the world issues bonds, but I would assume that they do. There are really you know common bonds like US treasuries, German bonds, Swiss bonds, and the UK bonds have been in the, the news a lot because of the political instability over there. Those are, those are called gilts. So yeah, national governments, they're always issuing bonds to fund their, their activities. There are also municipal bonds, at least in, in the US, where more local units of government are issuing them. So cities, counties, school districts, even some other units have bond issuing ability. And there are tons and tons of municipal bonds, which we can, we can talk more about. And then, yeah, on the, the corporate bond side, a lot of companies that need to, to raise capital, you know, a common way for companies to raise money is to, to go public. But companies that are already public and don't want to issue more shares, they often issue corporate bonds that, you know, have debt financing. It's just, you know, it's borrowing and um, that can help fund their activities. And every bond, you know, government or corporate has a credit rating that depends on the financial strength of of the issuer. But especially on the corporate bond side, there is a lot of difference between, you know, a blue chip company that's issuing corporate bond that's very likely to be repaid and maybe more of a, a high flying company that could you know come back down to earth or um, just companies that aren't as mature in their in their markets those are a lot riskier to invest in so then for investors maybe thinking about wanting to add some bonds to their portfolio either corporate or government bonds it's a bit different than buying stocks can you talk about Mm -hmm. how investors can buy bonds yeah yeah it depends on what bond you're buying a lot of sort of professional, or I shouldn't say a lot of, but the brokerages that cater to more professional or experienced investors like um, interactive brokers, for example, those brokerages, you tend to be able to buy a lot of different types of bonds right through the brokerage, um, either on the secondary market and sometimes as um, initial issues. And so that's helpful if you're if you want to hold a bond directly. You can buy treasuries or corporate bonds or municipal bonds. You can also buy bonds directly from the US government or US treasury bonds. At least the website Treasury Direct is the place to to do that. They don't have every type of bond that they issue, but you can buy longer term bonds there. I think 20 and 30 year bonds and um, also I bonds, which are inflation protected bonds. A lot of people practically speaking, don't buy bonds directly. They invest in bond funds, which are more liquid. Their mutual funds are ETFs, but ETFs are are generally more appropriate for um, your average millennial retail investor because they tend to have lower expenses and they're a little bit less complicated tax-wise. And you can invest in basically... You're not investing in specific bonds when you're buying an ETF, but you're investing in a diversified basket of bonds that fit a particular style or type. So you can invest in emerging market bonds or municipal bonds or short-term government... Uh, U.S. government bonds, kind of whatever, whatever you want to do, a diversified, you know, securities portfolio that you would build for yourself, probably have a, a few different bond funds in it. 
And so I guess just on the ETFs, so that's kind Mm -hmm. of a good way to get a diversified basket of bonds, like you mentioned. But I'm wondering if you have any tips of what millennials should look for when comparing different bond ETFs as there's like stocks, there's a lot of different ETFs out there. So what should they be looking for when comparing these? Yeah, kind of just like just like stock ETFs, you you definitely want to pay attention to the expense ratio. So the fee that the the ETF takes to manage itself, those can vary a lot based on how the ETF is managed. So passive ETFs that are managed with a really light touch, they tend to have super low expense ratios, like below 0.1%. So you're paying very, very little to... And that's annualized. So you're paying very, very little to keep that bond in your portfolio. More actively managed bond portfolios uh, or bond ETFs, they you know they might perform a little bit better because they're being actively managed and the, the managers are looking for opportunities. But that expense ratio can really eat into your returns, especially when we're talking about bonds where the volatility is lower. So the, the gap between the kind of worst case scenario and the best case scenario for your returns is a lot smaller than it is for a stock ETF. So that's that's an important one. Um, and you want to look also at you know the type of bonds that that are being held in the ETF. So if you want to invest in municipal bonds, you want to buy a municipal bond ETF. Um, if you want to invest in U.S. government bonds, you buy a, a treasury ETF. But you also want to look at the risk of the underlying investment. So municipal bonds, even though they're government bonds, can be a lot riskier than U.S. government bonds because not every city or state or county is you know, financially in a strong position and they can't just print money for themselves. Same deal with like merging market bond funds. Those tend to have higher yields, which which make them more attractive. But that's partly because, you know, sovereign governments can run into serious financial trouble. And uh, we saw that with, for example, the Greek debt crisis last decade. Um, That's just one example. There are a lot of lower profile examples of countries that run into serious financial trouble that their bondholders often, you know, end up taking... They might get some of their investment back, but they're not going to be made whole necessarily. And that's a significant, that's a significant risk. So it's important to, for you to just kind of think about, you know, the worst case scenario and, and invest accordingly. And I guess the other thing I kind of want to point out about bond ETFs versus investing in just a corporation or government bond is the par value. So for ETFs, it's just all based on market price. You don't get that par value. But if you're investing in an individual bond, then even if it goes, the price goes down as interest rates go up, if you hold it to maturity, you'll still get your money back. But that's not the case with ETFs. But I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts on if I guess ETFs are more sensitive to price swings or not in the interest rates or how you think about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I can't tell you offhand, like, you know, specific ETFs, how they compare to the underlying bonds in terms of their sensitivity to price changes. But generally speaking, I mean, you make a really good point that if you have a long time horizon and so you can afford to hold a five year bond or a 10 year bond to maturity, that is always preferable to investing in an ETF and, you know, hoping that you're going to have an equivalent value at the end of that. Time frame because ETFs they own the underlying bonds that they're invested in, but they don't have maturities. They just keep going because they're always buying and selling bonds with new maturities. So you can invest in an ETF, a short-term U.S. government bond ETF that holds 
you know, bonds with maturities no longer than five years for 15 years or 20 years or 30 years, if you want, it's just going to keep rolling over into new bonds. And it's going to have a new, those bonds are going to have new coupon rates based on what the bond market has done in the meantime. So holding individual bonds is preferable from from that perspective if you're really focused on making sure you get you get all of your investment back. But the flip side to that is that holding bonds directly can be can be cumbersome, you know, because you have to buy them individually. Uh, that's, that's sometimes easier said than done depending on the bond. And a lot of bonds have minimum, you know, the coupon, the smallest unit of the bond is often fairly fairly high in dollar terms like a thousand dollars maybe or even more and or there's a minimum investment that you have to make so from a practical perspective if you don't have thousands and thousands of dollars to invest it's more you know it's more within reach to invest in a a bond etf that you know you, you just have very small slices of those coupons but you're still getting that exposure so they're kind of pros and cons So I also want to talk to you about iSavings bonds because you mentioned those before and with rising inflation, investors are looking for products to kind of help them hedge against this inflation. So I'm just wondering if you can talk about this product and how that compares to the ones we've already talked about. Yeah, the iSavings bonds are kind of an interesting case. They're not really like other bonds or not like too many other bonds, at least. They are for... U.S. persons, you know, people who live in the U.S., I believe you need a social security number to buy iSavings bonds. And their like key differentiator is that they are inflation protected. So their their coupon rate, their interest rate changes every six months based uh, in part on what the inflate the actual inflation rate is doing the consumer price index in the United States. So they're inherently protected against the inflation risk that we talked about. And it doesn't mean they're always a great investment relative to stocks. But if you hold an I-bond, at least in theory, your investment won't lose value. You'll, it'll always keep up with inflation. Whereas if you hold you know, a not inflation-protected US Treasury bond and inflation goes up, your interest rate won't follow. So you will be, you'll be losing money. So yeah, so as, as far as I-bonds go, they're a great investment for kind of longer term savings if you're looking to not just have your money in a bank account. That said, there are some important restrictions that make them less ideal. They're not the perfect investment. So one important investment restriction is that you can only buy $10,000 worth of I-bonds a year per person. It's per social security number. So if even if you file taxes jointly with with your spouse, you can both buy $10,000 worth of bonds. That limit you know, will be a big deal for some people who are maybe higher earners and more conservative in terms of how they invest. Probably you know, a lot of people won't be able to hit it, and that's fine. There is some talk in Congress of increasing the um, investment limit per year to like $30,000, I think, uh, which would be great you know, for, for people who can afford, you know, who can meet that. The other issue restriction is that you can't cash out of an I-bond right away. And again, these are long-term investments, so you, you wouldn't want to, but you literally can't sell in the first year. So you have to hold it for 12 months. And then between the one-year mark and the five-year mark, you there's a penalty if you cash out. So it's equivalent to three months of interest, which the longer it goes on, the less of a big deal that is. But it's still something to keep in mind. 
then after five years, you can cash out with no penalty and your bond, if you do nothing, will mature in 30 years. So pretty long time horizon. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's a good investment if you are concerned about inflation and you're watching you know, the money you have in your savings account kind of dwindle away. I-bonds are good. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So, If you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither Public Investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. So I am wondering, since it has that added protection of inflation, is it offset then by a lower yield compared to other government or corporate bonds? It, well, yeah, like the yield has two parts to it. There's kind of like a base, a base yield, which does change based on the bond market, but isn't like directly tied to, tied to inflation. And then there's the inflation part, which at least in theory, it gets it back up to the 
the inflation rate. It resets every six months. So inflation can vary within that time. It's not going to be a perfect match. But generally, in periods of high inflation, your your I bonds will, will keep up. The rates reset for all bonds. So like if you buy an I bond, let's say I buy an I bond th- this month, the rates are going to reset in November. So coming up and that's going to affect the rate on my bond, not just on bonds that are bought in November. And then that'll keep that'll keep happening every six months. So right now the I bond rate is 9.63%. I believe that'll change next month. It'll probably it'll be similar, I would think Um, might go down slightly. And then over time, though, as hopefully inflation kind of cools off the rate on the I bonds that I bought this month will decline quite a bit. So, you know, back in the like early 2010s when inflation was basically nothing, I bonds were not seen as a good investment because they, you know, you might as well have your money in a savings account. It was it was going to be about the same return. They have, you know, performed much better in recent years, but it's still something to keep in mind that it's not always going to be that sky-high interest rate that you're getting right now. And it's at least in theory, you're not really going to gain anything in real terms. You're just going to keep pace with with inflation. So historically, like over longer periods of time, you're still probably better off investing in the stock market. Although it kind of depends what your longer term expectations of inflation are. Yeah. And I think that's a good point to point out. It's that the stock market has over outperformed bonds over the long term, but it kind of depends when you need that money. If you need that money for a large investment, maybe in the near term, next few years, then you might be more focused on just capital preservation and making sure that you're not getting eroded by inflation versus trying to I guess, accumulate as much wealth and really on that growth aspect. So it just depends on your current investment strategy and needs. And I also want to talk to you about, I guess, on the iSavings bonds, are there any tax benefits that investors should know about? Yeah, there are tax benefits. So you do have to pay federal income tax on your uh, I-bond interest. But if your state has a state income tax, you don't have to pay state income tax on your interest. And if you live in a city or county with a local income tax, you don't have to pay local income tax either. So it's it, they're an even better deal for people who live in higher tax areas than folks who live in, in states without income taxes. There are, there are advantages. It's not quite a tax benefit, but there are advantages to... You can use the interest for education expenses as well. Um, so they're kind of like a backdoor college savings fund in that way. I wouldn't say that's a, a reason to go out and buy I-bonds. The, um, the state and local tax benefits are probably probably a bigger, a bigger deal for most people. And then how can investors get exposure to these? Where can they buy them? The best place and actually maybe the only place to buy them is at least now is the Treasury Direct website. So I believe it's treasurydirect.gov. The website's kind of wonky. People make fun of it, but it works. And um, you can, you know, create an account. I did it earlier this year. It took probably less than an hour. I don't remember exactly. It was it was pretty painless, sort of like opening a bank account. And you just buy the bonds directly there. They're they're new issues. There's uh, no secondary market for uh, I bonds, at least that I'm that I'm aware of. If you want to cash out, you just yeah, you, know, you basically sell it sell it back to the the government through Treasury Direct. So yeah, it's pretty it's pretty straightforward. I I'm trying to f- like figure out a reason if if you have extra cash why you wouldn't want to buy I bonds, but I really <laughs> I really can't. You know, it's a good supplement to your savings. 
And then the other thing I wanted to talk to you about, because I know you have an article written on this, is exchange traded notes. And I guess how those are different from bond ETFs. Exchange traded notes aren't as common as bond ETFs. And the biggest difference is that they don't own the underlying bonds. So like when you buy a bond ETF, you're indirectly buying the bonds themselves because the the ETF's manager or issuer owns them. An ETN, uh, exchange traded note is and you know I I couldn't explain how how this is done but they are indirectly gaining exposure to mirror the price of that that basket. So you might have a, an exchange traded note that holds short-term US government bonds but they don't actually hold those bonds. They just kind of mimic the price of what an ETF that holds those bonds would do. That matters because there is tracking risk involved, which means that if the ETN isn't actively managed, it could, over time, the price could diverge from the underlying basket of securities, whereas the ETF is more likely to mirror the price. Um, it's, It's still not perfect for an ETF. But there's less tracking risk, less tracking risk in that way. And exchange traded notes also have more liquidity risk because they tend to be traded more thinly than bond ETFs. So you can really get into a situation where you just can't find a buyer at the price you want to, the price you want to sell for or vice versa. And that can affect your returns uh, quite a bit. The underlying, the not holding underlying bonds is also important because, um, should, the issuer go belly up, you have less recourse. From a practical perspective, you're probably not going to get all your money back if a bond ETF goes belly up, but you still have more protection. And just generally, if you hold hold bonds directly than you do from with an instrument that doesn't really hold any assets directly, if that makes sense. Definitely. It's more like investing in, in a stock where it can go to zero and, you know, that's it. You're out of luck. For sure. And then I guess the last investment product I want to talk to you about is preferred shares because we're looking for investments that do well in high inflation and rising interest rate environments right now. And preferred shares are interesting because they fall into the category of performing well during rising interest rate environments, especially the ones that are rate reset preferred shares. So I was wondering if you can just talk a bit about what preferred shares are, and then maybe we could go over some examples of some. Preferred shares are, they're a type of, they're a type of stock. They're, they're sort of like a hybrid between stocks and bonds, but they're, they're treated more like stocks. And in the, the, I guess the best way to think about them is there are stocks that, you know, trade on an exchange or over the counter, but they, they trade on the secondary market. They pay dividends that are generally higher than the corporation's common stock dividends. So just making this up, but if you had a company that paid a 3% dividend on their common stock, the preferred stock dividend might be 6%. And that the dividend is fixed, but you know because the, the price can vary, the actual rate will change a little bit over time. They... Unlike bonds, they don't have maturity dates. They just trade. They trade indefinitely, kind of like bond ETFs. There is... There is liquidity risk with preferred shares that uh, often isn't present with common stock. Common stock, the float, the number of shares tends to be a lot greater. So the market's much more liquid. The pricing is much more efficient. Preferred shares, oftentimes, you know, some companies, their preferred shares don't trade every day. So that can be, you know, again, it's better to look at it as a longer term investment. And there's still a potential for price risk there. As far as the one benefit 
that's often cited of preferred shares is you're ahead of in the queue. You're ahead of common stockholders if the company goes bankrupt. Generally, preferred shareholders, they don't get much, if any, of their money back. But there's still a little bit more of a likelihood that you're going to get repaid something. Bondholders are much more likely to get repaid, though. So that's definitely not you know a reason to invest in preferred shares over, over common shares. And yeah, uh, preferred share prices also have more correlation with the underlying fundamentals of the, the company, whereas bonds, bond price, even for corporate bonds, they tend to be more sensitive to interest rate risk and more like economic factors. So if you're kind of looking to mirror the performance of the company, then that, that can be helpful. Thanks for explaining that. I really like preferred shares personally. I've been adding its ZPR to my portfolio for my Canadian listeners. It holds preferred shares in primarily energy stocks and Canadian banks. And the nice thing about preferred shares, as you mentioned, is that it gives you exposure to these companies in a different way. So you get preference of dividend payment. And another thing I like about rate reset preferred shares is that the dividend payment increases and benefits as interest rates rise. So in this ETF I mentioned in particular, it benefits when the five-year Government of Canada bond yield rises. So it just helps serve as a portfolio hedge against rising rates, which is nice in this environment. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. If, if you can find rate reset preferred shares that meet your investment goals, I would definitely say, yeah, because inflation will come and go, but it's nice to have that downside protection when we're in a hot inflation environment like we are right now. Yeah. But then the other thing to remember is the coin will flip. So it's when the Fed pivots and they start going <laughs> yeah. down, then in the next few years, the preferred shares won't perform as well. But it's just... The point of, I guess, diversifying your portfolio to meet your investment needs. So if you need some more diversification, then not everything in your portfolio will be going up at the same time. Yeah, totally agree. It's a great point. Then I guess just lastly, I'm wondering if you have any bond funds you would like to share with our listeners that maybe you've done some research on and think might be of interest to them and that they can investigate further. Uh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, I would always encourage everyone to do their own research. Uh, I'm not really recommending these per se, you know, so definitely, definitely make sure that you, you do your own due diligence, but some pretty, I guess, popular and, uh, you know, straightforward bond funds that I think a lot of, would be suitable for a lot of millennials is one is uh, the ticker is VTEB. It's the Vanguard tax exempt bond ETF. It has a super low expense ratio. I think 0.06%, give or take. And the it, it holds mostly municipal bonds and some bonds issued by states in the United States. And the tax benefits are a little, a little less clear cut than they would be if you were buying municipal bonds directly, but there may still be some tax benefits to holding tax exempt bonds in, in general. And again, that's not necessarily a reason to invest in this particular fund, but it's something to keep in mind because it can, you know, your returns can be a little bit higher than they would be otherwise. Another one along those lines is PZA is the ticker. It's uh, the Invesco municipal bond ETF. Same kind of deal. You're investing in mostly local governments and their bond issues. We were talking about short-term US treasury bonds. And a good one for that is the iShares Core uh, one to five year US bond ETF. ISTB is the ticker. That also has a really low expense ratio. It's just kind of a way to 
to get exposure to shorter term U.S. Treasury bonds. And right now, those are because of the yield curve inversion that we were talking about. Those are performing in terms of their yield, performing really well by historical standards. So if you're looking for income in the short term, that could be a good uh, a good bond ETF to buy into. Thank you for sharing those, Brian. I think that is all I had for today. Before we close out the episode, can you remind our listeners where they can go to read all your articles and connect with you? Sure. Yeah, I uh, am at moneycrashers.com. I'm the finance editor there. Um, We have tons of articles about a lot of what we talked about. And um, you can find me on LinkedIn as well. And yeah, thanks for having me. This has been great. Thank you so much. Thanks. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Make sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app so that you never miss a new episode. And if you've been enjoying the podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you left us a rating or review. This really helps support us and is the best way to help new people discover the show. And if you haven't already, be sure to check out our website, theinvestorspodcast.com. There's a ton of useful educational resources on there, as well as our TIP finance tool, which is a great tool to help you manage your own stock portfolio. And with that, I will see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.